Welcome to the Philosophy of Time podcast. My name is Sean Power. I'm a philosopher of time who works on mainly experience of time, or experience in general. One of the reasons why I picked time as a subject that interests me was because I thought it would give me access to almost everything. Because as far as I can tell, our thinking about time impacts almost everything else we think about. Hope you enjoy this. Just a brief, I suppose you might call it a trigger warning for this episode, to do with the recording. This episode is recorded in various locations. Once in a forest, when I'm walking through the forest, going up a hill and then back down again a few times. Then on a beach, on a slightly cold day, Try my best to shelter the speaker microphone from the wind. I'm not fully succeeding. So that part would probably be quite frustrating to listen to for some people because there would be this kind of constant <laughs> buffering caused by the wind blowing against the microphone. And finally, it's recorded in my in a house, standing by the door looking out at the trees in a garden been blown away around by a very strong wind. That's probably the most easiest to listen to. But again, there's all this background sound, and that is the sound of the wind blowing in the trees. In this episode, I'm going to talk about film and the experience of time when we're watching a film and how it might relate to real time and our actual real experience of time. And I'm going to come up with a basically uh, unusual thesis, um, which is in line with a lot of my work and research. Maybe not, not that unusual, but the basic argument, the basic claim I'm going to develop or get to is that when you experience time in a film, in watching a film or something like that, your experience of time is the same length as your experience of time similarly in the real world. And that's because the means by which you judge time, um, the metric you use, is the same. Um, in a film, is uh, the different units of that measure are accumulated or ticked off, the clock ticks um, in a film as much as it does with an equivalent emotionally intense experience in real life. But this doesn't necessarily mean that your general experience of time in the world is wrong or that your experience of time in watching a film is wrong. But it does tell you something about what it is you're actually using to measure time in the world and that's the insight I hope you take away from it the idea that your experience that your your experience of time is what you're measuring when you when you have a sense or when you sort of reflect upon or examine your sense of how much time has passed what you use is nothing like clock time 
Hopefully that won't be too surprising. But in this, I develop a little bit. It also includes a few references to things like uh, philosophers like Wittgenstein and Frege, um, and also to my attempt to remember a story by a Hindu of a Hindu myth, which I have tried to do some research after this podcast to try and find the, uh, the the myth, and I couldn't find it. But I did find an interesting fact that mathematics is part of a lot of this such a thing as Vedic mathematics, which I didn't know about. And I've always and as as I have known. But um, and you may know also the history of mathematics, which is fascinating. A large amount of modern mathematics is found in was developed in India, medieval India, and earlier than that. Um, and then into Arabic, and the, into the Middle East, until eventually reaching Europe. And uh, it's important to remember that. And lastly, um. There's a lot here that I think is incomplete. There's stubs of ideas, which I would hope develop elsewhere. There's just an awful lot packed into these into these discussions. They don't come from, not not from how great I am or I know so much. Just there's a lot into all this stuff, and I never feel like I'm doing it justice. So if you feel like there's gaps or anything like that, you're probably right. And hopefully, I'll pick up on those gaps in the future. If not, feel free to send me a message. Okay. Enjoy the quite badly recorded episode. Thanks very much. There's a strange temporal aspect to going to see a movie. You walk in, you sit down, and you spend, on average, if you're in the cinema, an hour and 30 minutes... If you're at home, maybe an hour, or if you binge-watch something you could be spending these days, up to 8 or 22 hours of watching something like The Sopranos. And you sit there and you say, I spent an hour at this, or an hour and a half. But in those, in that time, an hour, an hour and a half, what you observe, what you spend time experiencing, what you just spend time experiencing that you describe yourself as experiencing isn't that you spent an hour and a half sitting in front of something, hearing sounds from a vibrating wire that's been amplified and watching a series of colors on a two-dimensional surface persistently in motion, constantly changing. No, what you would say is I watched a story about a a woman who, after walking in the woods for several hours, suddenly found herself by the edge of a river and she heard a noise of something coming down the river. And in the distance she could see, under all the eaves and the heavy shadows of the trees, something with light on it, maybe a boat coming towards her, but there were no voices, no sound, no engine. And it didn't look as if there was even the sound of oars in the water, just a boat floating on its own no one on it. You tell a story. You'd say something about people or machines or things in motion, things in the world, even though in that room all there really is, other than the seats and the upholstering, the furnishings of that space, all there really is that you're describing 
that's motivating you to make these descriptions are color and lights. And there's also a sense in this experience of time. That's strange. You might call it fictional time, definitely. But adding the word fictional doesn't really tell you anything except that it isn't really the time you spent there. There are films that you watch that are real time. They are the time you spend with the film. Something is shown and it's just a single hour and a half of an event. But those are the exception. Almost, almost immediately in the history of film, people were showing scenes in front of you that were different temporally. I mean, this isn't unique to film, though. Before film, there was theatre and plays. You'd watch a play, and the play would go through the entire life of a religious figure or some heroic character or just the life of a few people. And every time you do this, you, you spend time and you watch and they tell you something and it feels like you're experiencing it. But it actually, I mean, I cannot speak for plays and this is where my ignorance comes in because I haven't seen that many plays. There aren't that many theatres either when I grew up or either where I went to college. I don't have a culture of it. Some of my friends do. I've been to plays. I've even gone to plays deliberately, enjoying them. I've just gone along as part of a cultural event or something. But I'll go to so many films. I'll watch so many films. And I expect that you might too. There's an interesting kind of continuum between my telling you a story like I just did and the experience there of the time of that story and going all the way into sitting in front of watching a Marvel movie, say, or watching, to an extreme example, like watching uh, one of... Um, like watching Tree of Heaven where millions of years pass in some of the images. In the Marvel movie. No, never mind the Marvel movie. One, two, three. In the... In my telling you, there's no struggle with the temporal aspect. Look, this morning I woke up, then I got in the car, after doing a few hours of work, and then I'm here. And I have just, in the space of one or two seconds, or a few seconds, described, refer to a period of time that is not a few seconds. My speech, my sentence that took me a few seconds to say took, refers to hours of time. And there's no struggle here at all. We have words for time. And the words for time are not themselves beholden to those times. I can refer to a second, and it can take longer than a second to say. I can refer to a minute, an hour, a day, a year. The temporal properties of my utterance has no necessary relationship to the temporal properties of what I'm referring to. At least, I suppose you could dig around and find some necessary ones, but they wouldn't be particularly interesting here. What's interesting is that I can refer to eons and epochs without in any way being weird 
It's just how speech works. There is a part of, I think, Hindu mythology, probably the major heroic gods, one of the main heroic gods, is asked in a court to recite the numbers. And his prowess is indicated in the story that's supposed to show that he really is this godlike being. He's astonishing. Is that he's able to keep counting up to larger and larger and larger numbers. He's able to keep saying bigger and bigger and bigger numbers. It shows he can kind of hold those numbers in his mind. He can conceive of them. And that shows his truly divine power. His ability to hold vast ranges of numbers in his mind, in his ideas. This is an interesting demand or claim or assumption about thinking about mathematics, thinking about ranges and, and extensions, that your ability to think about a certain value requires something more than what's possible for it can, can be limited. You might be unable to think about a certain value because of your own mental capacities or abilities. Like, I can right now refer to uh, the largest possible number. That number about which no other number, number beyond which no other number is larger. I've just said it. Not only that, you just heard me. And if you understand all the words I used, you can refer to the largest possible number. Now, it doesn't matter if the largest possible number exists or not, because that isn't really what it's about when we talk about numbers in this context. It's just you can refer to it. So the ability to think about the largest possible number, or think about what it truly is, which is some sort of transfinite number, some sort of infinite, infinity, one of the infinite numbers beyond infinity, or what are called transfinite numbers, you may not know that, but that's what they're called. And I can use a term, and I can say it. And that doesn't, to me, I, I read it in a book 28 years ago, first time ever. And, you know, I kind of got the concept of why they are thought to exist, the arguments for their existence. But once you grasp the arguments for their existence, which is something that this Hindu god could do, it's um, not particularly hard to refer to them. There's an argument, there's an pr argument by proof that shows that there's no greatest prime number. But I can still refer to the greatest prime number. And again, it's not really a struggle. Once you understand what a prime is, once you understand the greatest, meaning there's nothing bigger than it, nothing larger than it, of that type, and you understand what a number is. Not only that, but what's kind of puzzling for some, of course some philosophers are obsessed over what a number was. In fact, one of the most influential logical philosophers who influenced some seriously influential... Okay, I'm not going to give you a chain of influences, especially as I just stood in a big pile of mud while walking in this countryside. <laughs> one of the most influential philosophers, or at least one of the philosophers who influenced a, lar a, a great many of the philosophers I've studied. Let's put it that way. Frege had to... One of his elements of fame that made him well known was that he he worked out how, he worked out a method by which to define what a number is. The interesting thing about that, and this is something I take it that was one of the philosopher Wittgenstein's problems with Frege's type of approaches or any of these type of philosophers' approaches, is that you may learn this method 
And you may use this method to understand, to define what a number is. But you can still use numbers before you do it. And you can still use numbers after you do it. And not only that, but you can check that the method, the means of defining um, a number that way, actually suits the definition by just checking and going, well, is that actually what a number is? Like, is a number one the set containing the null set? That's what Frege called it. Is number two the set containing the set that is number one and the null set? That's what Frege called it. Is that really what a number is? Once I understand those terms, maybe it is. But what's interesting is that I will be able to, if I understand those terms appropriately, I might be able to check them against what a number is and go, no, it misses certain properties of numbers. In other words, I have a concept of numbers that sits behind or sits before or is already there before I start looking at something like a Fragan analysis. And this suggests also, like I was saying, that, that most people are like this. Most people use numbers all the time, quite casually. And it's quite extraordinary that we might do so, but it isn't extraordinary and divine and godlike such that people would be gasping at court that we do so. And yet that's what the Hindu mythology suggests with this particular god who... Being able to uh, know what the greatest number is is still kind of amazing. There's, there's the idea that you can express a certain number at all. We might take our ability to express numbers for granted because the methods by which we do mathematics are actually methods that have been evolved over thousands of years. They are, they are expert systems that are easily communicated. And in, and in kind of cultural expert systems that, that come, come between us by mathematical teaching, but once we learn the method, we get it. And if we don't have that method, which took centuries of honing, you would actually struggle to express these mathematical ideas. And let me give you an example. I can, t- I can write down the number for infinity by writing what often looks like a sideways, sideways an eight on its side. I can also express in numbers something like three, the number three, multiply by itself three times, and then another number, which I'm not really defined, any other number I might care to pick, being multiplied by itself by the number of times that is equal to three multiplied by itself three times. Or to put it another way, that is x to the power of 3 squared. Do you notice how I try to say that in words without actually just saying x to the power of 3 squared? Like x to the power of 3 squared. I, or rather, x and then to the power of, open brackets, 3 squared, close brackets. What I just said there is the best way of expressing what I'm trying to get at, which is like, x to the power of 9. You can't do that with Roman numeral systems. Try and write that down in Roman numerals. You'll struggle. And that's even using digits like 3 and 9 that actually exist in, math, in, in, Rome, in Roman language, in Roman number system. There's way more complex numbers that you would really struggle to express. And that suggests something about different societies that they have these capacities. But it's not like I am really good at maths and so I can do this. It, you know, I'm nothing special. I'm no... I'm no, uh, I don't know, Weisberg, I suppose. I think that's a mathematician, right? Or I'm no Brian Cox, which is a popular 
astrophysicist uh, at the moment. Um, you know, I'm just, I, my mathematical ability is not that great by, by any standards where people would actually give a damn. I'm able to do that because of my background, because of my ability to communicate it, because of how I was brought up, because of whole kinds of programs, culturally pro, cultural methods that have been handed down over the centuries amongst different people, so that if when I do communicate that other people understand us. I know what to do next when I see such a number. I know how to calculate out, how to, how to resolve that equation. And the point is, when I then say, I don't know, infinity to the power of three multiplied by the first transfinite number multiplied by itself, the first transfinite number squared. Now, I don't even know I, what the answer to that is, but I know that it's an equation, and I know there's certain rules that I have to follow to, to work that out. Not only that... <laughs> But it's possible that I can't do it. Like, one of those things might be the equivalent of 1 over 0, 1 divided by 0, which is undefined. It's important to understand that it's undefined, meaning there isn't a result of that. Um, not that it's infinity. You can treat it like infinity for practical purposes, but they're not actually the same. Um, if you're sitting here going, what is he talking about? The point I'm making here is that there's lots of ways that we can express ourselves. And not only that, but we can do things with that expression, and we can show we understand it, which is both common, it's about numbers, and it's powerful, but the methods are literally not available to people hundreds of years ago. It's a technology in the same way that my ability to go home and drink some fresh water and then boil a pot of pasta and have some pasta with a sauce and a glass of fizzy water if I start carbonate the water using a, uh, a carbonating machine. That's something I can do, but I can, it, I can do it on top of a heap of technologies. Like, like having a tremendous ego about my ability to do that um, it's absurd. So maybe one of the things that's happening in this Hindu story is that this god turned up in a culture that was like the Roman culture and expressed knowledge and ability that was extraordinary. Now, what's interesting about that is he might have also been bullshitting. I don't believe in the Hindu mythology, but you could do the equivalent. He could just be saying things and they with such confidence that because they don't really know maths they just listen to a nod away in, in awe but really what he's saying is nothing he's saying nonsense he doesn't care if what he's saying is true or not it just sounds good it's, it's consistent with some sort of behaviour that sounds good Okay, so let's roll back to the philosophy of time and movies and the experience of time. The point I was making earlier is that you can refer to different values, different durations, different periods of time in just speaking. And also math. And it's not really a very surprising thing. It's a sub-variant of this kind of stuff. I can talk about inf infinite periods of time. I can talk about the end of time, all time. I can talk about the fact that time does not end, or I can claim that. And what I'm expressing can make some kind of sense. And at least people can talk to you that way. And, and I can say it with confidence. Although it's worth asking, do I really know what I'm talking about? Like, do I really know what it means for time to end? And what I mean by time ending is not for time to, not for like other things to end, but time itself to cease, or the beginning of time to start. There to be a beginning of time. Can I make sense of that? 
Can I say that and mean what I say? Or put another way, does what I say when I say that there's a beginning or an end to time make sense? Or am I just using words in particular arrangements so that it sounds like it makes sense, but really I'm not making any sense at all? Wittgenstein's, part of the philosopher Wittgenstein's fame is that he, he attacked this kind of expression, expressing yourself and pretending. He questioned the idea that when you say something like there's a beginning or an end to time, that's not exactly his example, but I think it's a useful example. But when he attacked the idea of something like the beginning of end of time, he, he, he attacked the idea that we could really know what we mean. And he really asked what it, mean, what, what it means to mean something by what you say. So, for example, if I say there's an end to time, Wittgenstein would go, all right, what do you mean by the end of time? So let's start for something. Let's just forget about time for a second. I'm not going to ask you what time is. I'm just going to ask you what you mean by the end of something. Like, what do you mean by the end of the story? The end of the story is clearly the bit where you, you get... There's different things you can mean by that. You can mean when you tell a story, a specific case of you telling a story, and the end of the story is where you stop. But you actually might say in that case, that doesn't really work. And you can readily explain why that doesn't work. You say, that doesn't work because... I often say, I came to the end of the story, I was coming to the end of the story, and then I got cut off. Like my cousin broke, came in and said, hey, what time is it, or whatever. <clears throat> so the end of the story is not the same as where I stop in any particular instance. Stories have a, have a structure to them. And as a result, I have a beginning ending, which is independent of any particular me telling of it. I can fail to get to the end of my story. So maybe the end is where the point of the story is discovered. But what do you mean by that? You'd have to explain what you mean by a point of the story. And that's okay. You might say, the end of the story is the point of the story. But why do you, what is the point? Well, he told the story because he wanted to entertain people. Well, the ending of the story isn't the entertaining of them. They might find the telling of the story entertaining. And the telling of it is not the ending of it. You know, the ending of it is at the end of the telling if you tell the whole story. And by that, you're saying that telling and ending a story are separate elements and they're separate to each other. So this is telling and the ending. Now, I'm not gonna keep going with this. My only point about this is that when you apply that to time, but the end of something, you have some rules about the endings of other things or things in general and then you try to apply it to time. And if you don't already understand what it means for the end of time, which is the point here, you question whether you do understand it, that's the open question, then you have to look at all the other cases of ending and then compare them to each other, look at them all, and see that, well, there is, you apply to time. Now, for most other things, including the stuff you describe in a story, one idea of the ending story is that the end of the story is, is the bit of the story where after it, nothing else happens. And the end of time might be the bit where nothing else happens too, but there's this idea that to, for time to stop, it isn't just that nothing else happens, because you could say nothing else happens a minute later, a day later, a year later, 
But in saying that, you're actually using time. Time hasn't ended. So it's something more. When we say something like the end of time, or we make a sentence, because of the way our language works, according to Wittgenstein, we can fit in all kinds of terms in there and treat them like it. Treat, we can fit all kinds of terms into parts of a sentence, part of a phrase like the end of time, and treat it as if it's almost as meaningful. And it's only when it's obviously not. When our understanding of the terms is so clearly clear to us that we are that we can tell immediately or easily enough that what we're saying is nonsense. If I talk about the north of love, it sounds like a sort of a badly translated art house movie, but whether it means anything rather than sounding kind of distinctive, like the way so that people will automatically know which movie you're talking about. North of Love, and if it isn't a town, like it might be if it was an American aircraft movie, they would use the idea that there's a town called North, I can imagine, especially maybe in the 90s. Um, you'd have a very justified thing, well, the North, South, East and West don't really apply feelings. Part of their identity is not that they have spatial locations, and uh, especially they don't have relative spatial locations, such that you can talk about things above and below and in front of and behind. And even if you did that, the idea that you'd have that specific coordinate system that's defined by geographical location really, really does make it difficult to make sense of that north of love. Some people might think above love, but if you're Australian, then you're probably thinking below love. And both of you, if you really start hammering out, you can imagine people beating each other over this. You think there's something gone very wrong in their own basic thinking. Maybe they're... Um, when I tell you a story, though, there is this... Your imagination begins to activate. And as I'm telling you the story, you play using your imagination with what I'm telling you. You will notice, like, to be told a story where people are just like, what's he talking about? Like, part of the telling the story is actually bringing up parts of people in terms of... Bringing up parts of people's feelings in terms of um, what they feel, what they think, and also that they understand it. If I tell a story to a bunch of five-year-olds where I talk about abstract ideas around, I don't know, phenomenology and uh, meta-metaphysics, you know, it's just boring to a kid because they don't know what the terms mean. That if somebody tells a story, the terms have to be understood on the other side, which probably means that when you start using terms in a certain way, it ex- people already have associations with them. And those associations are what are doing a lot of the work in the story. And good storytellers often pick up on this, they can adapt it to the audience. This stuff I'm talking about here, possibly it doesn't have much association with people listening to it. You might have no sense whatsoever of some of the things I'm talking about. I mean, you might never have been in a forest. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how the world's gonna be, I don't know how long this podcast is gonna exist in the world in some way. And I don't know if we're gonna live in a world where you know, nature is less accessible. I lived in, I've lived in Cork for several years and if I didn't have access to these spaces out here through my family connections in my hometown, I don't know how often I'd be in a forest or how often I'd be alone in a forest, which I'm in right now. People can still get the idea of the terms that they're hearing, but they do seem to, it does seem to piggyback on their understanding of it beforehand. 
And uh, possibly one sign, like one interesting thing about that Hindu myth is that the people thought he was an extraordinary ability to count, is that it might not come across that way unless it was within the system by which of mathematics that the people listening understood. So if I go to Roman, go back to Roman times, and I start talking about, I don't know, logarithms, there may very, I mean, probably some historian mathematics would say that there was some sort of proto-logarithm, proto-logarithms in, in Roman society, but I don't know, I assume they weren't. So if I start talking about the number zero, or I start talking about um, powers, they're not going to know what the hell I'm talking about, basically. And they're going to be bored, and they're not going to be impressed by my ability in mathematics. They might think I'm a madman. And so the ability for the person being communicated with words, their ability to hear it, to experience what they're being told, depends on their knowledge. And when it comes to things like time, it took an hour for me to get there, it took two years for me to get there, three, year, three days um, I stayed at home in bed, people grasp what it is, and then they fill it out with their own things. But with movies and films and television, a lot of the part that the imagination's doing its work for, filling in, as it were, is already there. It's given to you, or it seems to be. The colours and the shapes. When someone says, I see a boat coming down the river in the dark with no signs of oars and no signs of an engine, just floating, and this woman walked to the edge of the river to look at it, what I've just described to you, you're going to fill out in various ways. The river rushing really fast. Is it, we were covered in trees at either side. Is this in Vienna? Is this in a forest? Is this in an industrial wasteland? Is this still unmoving river, stagnant? Or is it gently going downhill so the boat has been carried downhill on its own? It's maybe it just broke free of its moorings. That can tell you an awful lot of what's going on. But if you're watching it, all of that is given to you already. And not only that, there's a particular colour, cast, shape, everything else to your experience and sound that will also inform you. There's a particularity of the film that doesn't exist in the storytelling using words. But also, it's a substitute. It's not, even, it's not even a substitute. You're not using your imagination to fill in the description. Instead, the picture and the sound is doing it. And what's interesting, though, is that the hour and a half, somehow a film managed to do all that while not as it were, using the actual things themselves or the experience of things themselves for time. Okay, I'll get back to that. So, film and our sense of time. Where I'm going with this is that it's no difficulty at all for us to think about language, about sentences, statements, stories, um, expressing different things like time and space without themselves occupying that time and space. But film is interesting because film... Because when it comes to stories, one of the reasons why that works so well is because we understand them, once we understand the meanings of words, we sort of fill them in. We can fill them in with our own sense of that word. And, you know, that can, that can create some very strange effects. But... With film, um, like very strange effects in that different people can have different understandings of what they're hearing 
and they can end up a story can seem to be universal but it's just that the terms they're using are so commonly understood by different people that they uh, that different people understand them but might have very different understandings of what it's meant When you watch a film, you are typically presented in in an environment, with an environment that's completely controlled by the film itself in terms of two of our most important senses, vision and sound. You go into a room where it's silent otherwise and it's dark otherwise, and then the film starts. So, what's fascinating about film is that the cues, the cues, C-U-E-S, not cues like queuing for the cinema, but cues like um, indicators or signals in the film that tell you what, how time is passing. It can be as primitive as just writing three hours later and as sophisticated as subtle alterations that only certain people might even pick up. Like, for example, something struck me recently that my wife and I were watching something and she understood almost immediately that a scene had changed to a moment next and a few hours had passed between them, between one scene and the next. For me, that wasn't as obvious because it was to do with the way the characters were dressed and the alterations required for them to change from one scene to the other scene, it would have taken a few hours and it was a realistic film. And so for me, what would happen is like, if there was any significant difference in those moments, um, I might be like, they didn't really tell me that a lot of time had changed. I needed something else to indicate that time had changed much more significantly. And that kind of level is, is abstract and it's like someone saying, it's like the equivalent of in the symbols and the images in the story itself, telling people without telling them as it were, showing them um, signs that time had changed, but not showing you time changing itself, or rather not showing the duration in the way that falling asleep and waking back up again, you get that sense that time has passed while you're asleep. Not exactly, but you, you don't have a sense of just simply, there's a difference between falling asleep and waking up and simply going from one moment to the next in wakefulness. Films though, you know, we walk out of the film and we often blink and go, wow, that was intense. And we might say things like, we feel like we've been there for an enormously long time, suggesting that there is an impact on our sense of time while watching a film. But I guess the question is, if it isn't, is, that, is it the kind of impact that happens from dramatic experiences in our own lives is time actually our films actually correctly using time and we, so that so that our sense of how time passes is being exploited 
in a way that, say, clock time doesn't exploit it. Okay, what, what do I mean? Okay, so here's the thing. Our sense of time and clock time, clock time being 24-hour clock, you know, 12 hours divided twice, or 24-hour clock, hours divided into minutes, 60 minutes, 60 minutes divided into seconds, 60 seconds, and so on. That clock time. And you include with that calendars. The reason why I wouldn't exactly say calendar time is because there are different kinds of calendar time. There's week times, which are typical in modern business. There's divided into 13 week quarters of a year. There's month times, and so on. But the reason why clock time is that we're typically, we talk with each other about clock time. It's a convention. It's a it's a it's a, a uni, almost uni, human universal global convention but our experience of time is very different and it seems not to be globalizable in that way but it doesn't mean that it's wrong it just means that it's different to clock time it's a different way of measuring time and the thing I'm interested in is the rules that it follows one idea is that um, experience, the sense of time is tracks emotional change our own internal emotional change our own sense of emotional change whether it be well it doesn't matter because it can either be emotional change because of our own circumstances or emotional change because of others that we empathize with or we recognize and notice and one idea one sentence I've heard describing uh, film and this I think is from the film critic Mark Kermode is that films are empathy engines they are about generating empathy you're presented with a scenario which is not you you're not in the scene you're never it's not like even like a computer game and by the way I can't speak about computer games because I don't know about computer games but you, you can't you can't be in the scene but as much as possible the film is trying to put you in the scene by creating characters that you identify with by, by getting you to f- know what it's like to be in that situation and one of the interesting things about that is it can't, it doesn't rely on your own experience exactly to do that. It relies on the ability of it to fabricate experience itself. Fabricating experience insofar as um, the passivity of sitting on your ass watching a film can do. <laughs> um, films can, can give you a sense of soaring and belonging and moving through a world um, being freer in that world than uh, than your own life can there's a difference between walking into a war zone in a film where you're not actually having to move your limbs where you're not having to make a choice to do so when you've got the option to move away and actually walking into a war zone so there's limits to it but given those limits film is better at generating senses of being in a place that is not necessarily derived from your own understanding of what's being presented to you. And so it can give you new and novel experiences that stories can't, you know. I mean, a, a story just can't. Like a story being told to you just can't. When someone tells you, like people tell great stories, but at a certain point when someone tells you a story and they use words, the words only have any evocation for you because you've experienced it yourself. And the difference between somebody standing in front of you and saying, I, like I said earlier, I have seen a boat moving down a river in the dark, 
the, the, the experience you're having hearing that sentence, just picture that, imagine that. Imagine the sounds, imagine the, the seeing, what, is, what it looks like. And now, if you see that in a film, it'll be a completely different experience. And the experience of seeing it in a film is much more distinct. So one of the things here is that it might actually, because it's gener- empathy energy, it can generate senses of new feelings about humans, humans and new environments. It can generate new, genuinely new feelings. And in generating genuinely new feelings, it, it can alter your sense of time in a way that the story might not. Of course, some of the best stories do, but it's still difficult. Now, I should say that I understand storytelling is a skill and an art, that there is a, a lot of work that's done to, to show how great storytelling, just storytelling is done. And I've seen storytellers, and I've been a storyteller, um, and I've described things, I've read books, and books are in many ways written down storytelling. But whether I like it or not, even though I love writing and love writing stories, I know that my stories have power just because the people who read them understand the words. And again, you might argue, well, to see a film you have to understand, yes, it is. But, but the difference is that the level at which you are understanding what you're seeing, as opposed to understanding what you're being said, told, is there's a lot less work needed on the understanding you can find yourself almost immediately in there because that's how we experience the world. We go out, at least visually and sensorily, uh, audibly, we go out in the world and we hear and see and then we interpret our hearing and seeing. And film presents us with the hearing and seeing, which we then interpret. But we don't live, we don't wander around inside a said world. Now, people think we do, that it's all symbolic, there's semantics, there's, there's a signifier and a signifier and there's all this kind of stuff. And that's true on a certain level, but it's possible to have novel experiences of things in the world and not understand what you're seeing. And it's possible more with film than it is with, with text, with, with speech. This wind is way too powerful, I must stop. But it's this that might explain our change in our experience of time that has such a powerful effect in film in a way that, in a way that um, our experience of time being told a story is different. And that's kind of interesting to look at, and I'd like to understand that better. I'd also like to see if any of this is actually true, that if, if someone can tell you a story, um, but I just think logically, like, as a given, you just can't tell a story on its own, just, use, just using words, just telling. You can't just tell a story without the people understanding what you're saying, and it's understanding what you're saying, yes, they may have profound experiences in your telling of the story, but it'll be because of their own experiences that dredge you back up there. It's always a certain element of nostalgia or, or a certain element of, of uh, association with their own lives, which can be powerful and profound and moving and beautiful and boring. And films can be really boring too. But my point is that you don't need that with film. And so it has a more powerful effect. It's, it has more potential create new experiences and in creating new experiences it can create new emotional states at least temporarily in the moment which is why I think we have a sense of time passing that we almost accept and a lot of film is about somehow manipulating that and, and I mean I haven't given an answer to how they do that but the basic schema of it is that you're, you're experiencing you're having actual experiences 
or or at least uh, simulations strong enough of actual experiences that it feels like it's a new experience in your life in a way that being told a story it doesn't evoke that and uh, as a result when you come out of a story you might go that was a great story evening but when you come out of a film you might blink and go it was still daylight if it's a good film of course this film is very effective now I should say that there could be even more powerful films and there could be more powerful effects one can imagine that there are uh, haptic elements and I bet playing computer games has that element um, there's haptic there's visual and there's audible auditory audible. It's auditory um, one can imagine that there's olfactory which is a fancy way of saying the smells and you can have all of it skin touch you know complete virtual reality sense engrossment and you might end up in a situation where you spend an hour in it and then you come back out and uh it feels as if years have passed. And maybe that's an element of what happens when we dream. The same capacity, the same kind of rules apply. That full, overwhelming dreams that we wake up from. The film is copying that. The film is, in a sense, uh, creating... See, I think film is actually possibly more powerful than dreams. Film is not just a, 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 a kind of a public dreaming when people sit in a room and watch it. Film really is a, a sort of... Or it, it, maybe it's a public dreaming, but it's a... It's because of the new experiences. You see new colours, you see new shapes, just as you might in the real world, depending how well made the film is. Anyway, that's it. I mean, exper- I mean film ex- my, filmmakers might experiment with this. And when I say film, by the way, lastly, I don't mean just any film, like a Marvel movie or anything and the reason why I'm picking Marvel movies is because they've, they've classically had a problem with their colour grading they've been so flat their, their, their colour grading um, and the thing that I find interesting about this is like I, I find it difficult to identify the colour teal and identify the colour mauve I'm not entirely sure I even could pick them out and name them I kind of know what teal is now because my wife is often pointing at things and saying that's teal or the ocean I'm looking at is teal and that's what we're beginning to know what teal is but anyway uh, if someone could show me a film that has teal in it and I would go that's a new colour I still might recognise the new colour even though I couldn't name it if someone said there was a teal C I'd go TLC? like the band? or the learning channel but if someone shows it to me I go that colour and I don't have a name for it so another way of thinking about film is that film allows you to experience the world as, as you can which is that not only is it not just t- are you not just being told not only are you, is it not a form of telling but it's a form of showing but it's a form of showing without words it's a it's it, there, you don't need telling and the work is done that the telling hopes to do in film and again like I should say the, one of the ideas is that experience of time can be manipulated more easily in film because of that because we track if, we're, if it's correct that our sense of time it tracks our sense of emotional change because of emotional change film can generate emotional change more easily than storytelling like saying things there you are so here's the last thing I want to say about this at the beginning I talked about the idea that you sit down in front of a uh, film you're sitting down in front of a screen coloured lights and motion and sounds that are caused by the vibration of various wires and pieces of technology 
But you don't describe it that way. You describe it as a seeing people and objects moving through three-dimensional space in front of you. As hearing them, hearing their voices. As hearing the sounds of music. Sounds of a woman's voice or a man's voice. Sounds of water. trickle of the stream and also as part of this it is fair to say that you're under a tremendous mistake in terms of your experience because obviously there's nothing else in the room with you when you sit at home watching TV on your own you're the only person there. All there is in that room with you are figments, figments constructed out of light and color, or figments in your own mind, of course. Now, why that's relevant is that why it seems to you that you aren't just on your own is because how you know about other things in the world, like let's say the wind through the trees, or like in my original anecdote, just made up of um, seeing a boat coming down a river, is because your own visual experience and your own auditory experience is only of some of what is in the world. You don't get to hear every single creak and crack inside the body of a tree when it's being pushed by the wind. You don't see every place illuminated by light, whether it's the moon through the trees on the surface of the boat, on the surface of the water surrounding the boat. You don't, you don't get to visually experience the entirety of what there is in front of you. You have a limited visual experience and limited auditory experience. And even more so, this, your senses are combined together to give you a sense of a full visual and auditory experience. Audio-visual experience, I guess that's the way people say it. And this is a combination of what one ear hears, what the other ear hears, what one eye sees and what the other eye sees combined together. As well as it seems from the way people, people studies and evidence of it, as well as your knowledge, your, your history of your experience, your memory in some sense of what you've previously experienced. So what this suggests is the reason why you have what seems to be an experience of things in the world is because your experience of things in the world is just has as much information or as much um, sensory stimulation as the experience of watching a movie with really good speakers. Your visual experience cannot tell the difference between a flat surface, which faces you a certain angle, and a three-dimensional arrangement of objects facing you from the same angle they can resemble each other. And your 
your hearing cannot tell the difference between sounds coming from multiple locations around you and sounds coming from two different locations around you. The difference between them is sufficient. Your, and that suggests that your perceptual experience is limited. It's, it's, a, it's got a limit. It's not of everything that's there. And it's ab we're able to reproduce it. And how we're able to reproduce this is really interesting, and it's something I'm going to go specifically into it. But given what I've said so far, none of this suggests that you're actually under an illusion. You're under a mistake when you, it seems to you that you see things out in the world. But you're not under an illusion insofar as you are experiencing something that isn't the same as what you experience in the world. It's more that your visual experience, the auditory experience, being limited, cannot tell the difference in certain ways. For example, you don't have access to the third dimension in your visual experience. So, when you see the world, you have to infer all that, is this idea. And this is an idea that goes back to the Irish philosopher Bishop Barclay, who said that our experiences of two-dimensional things from which we infer things in the world, and as a result, we have no reason for thinking that what we experience is out in the physical world independent of us, but instead it's just ideas in our mind. And similarly, there's people who think that auditory experience, you could probably build similar arguments for auditory experience, but I won't go into it. If that were the case, then, then it would seem like your visual experience when you see things in the world, and your visual experience when you see movies, films, are pretty much the same. It's just different what's causing them. In the same way that a a square building facing you, one side of it facing you straight on. It's exactly the same colour as a rectangular building, which is exactly the same side facing you. And those faces are the same height. Like a building that's, say, two storeys high, three rooms wide, and both of those buildings have the same size rooms and the same height storeys, and they're both two storeys high. And you see them from the side but one of them actually is longer than the other, but you can't tell the difference. You wouldn't be under an illusion if you mistook one for the other. You just don't have access to that extra dimension, the third dimension. This is all very well, except for the fact that we do actually have a sense of spatial depth with both our visual and our, our, our auditory experience. So that has to be an illusion that's activated. And it, but it happens in the real world as well. It happens when encountering real things in the world as well as encountering things on TV and everything. So, my point is, when it comes to seeing the spatial world, our experience, a lot of it, is the same when we watch movies as when we see the world. And the differences are not things we can detect directly. Instead, we have to infer them or assume them are they built into our experience itself in some way? And those things, those, that, the differences, are our experience of, of that thing that's relevant to their difference is a product of our mind in both cases. By the way, that doesn't mean... That, that, sorry, that, that actually means that we're under an illusion of that depth. We are. Because it's a positive thing. It's something that seems to be there that isn't there. And sometimes the illusion rightly lines up with what's in the world and sometimes it doesn't it rightly lines up when we're actually seeing things that seem to be a certain distance from us and they really are 
and sometimes it doesn't when they aren't. And that's so common for us, outside the TV and inside the cinema, that we don't even question it, we don't even think about it. But what it means is that what we actually experience when we're watching movies and we're watching TV is pretty much the same, except for this one dimension. Now, you might ask whether or not what we experience when we're watching TV, watching the cinema, and what we experience in the real world in terms of time, whether that's pretty much the same. Or is that an illusion? Is that something that's generated by our own mind? Or is it something that's in the world that we detect? And in both cases, what they have in common is the thing we're detecting. The thing with time is it's not as clean to show that things can diverge from reality as we can with space. Like I already said, one understanding of our experience of time, a sense of time, when we go about, ourselves, about the world, and also when we watch movies and everything else, just in general, is that we're tracking emotional change. And if that's the case, then whether we're watching cinema or whether we're watching, whether we're out in the world, these emotional changes are what we get when we count changes in time. The cadence of emotional impact is the underlying rhythm, or the underlying beat that pushes the clock of our experience around. It's like the little, the little tick inside a as we've got a little mechanical quartz like tick inside a watch, or a vibration of cesium inside an atomic clock, and human consciousness, human experience in general, and our sense of time in general, the beat inside of us, the thing that beats, that pushes our sense of time, our sense of time going on, is emotional change. And there's many, many different versions of emotional change we can undergo. It's really complex and very nuanced. But there's also a sense of change in the world, which isn't just emotional change that we're aware of. But the way this works is that it's about our sense of how long things take. So we're certainly aware of other changes besides our own emotional change, but the thing we use to measure how long things take is the emotional beat. That's the central idea. But. When we're asked to, and I've argued this several places in my last paper that came out like two years ago, three years ago now, and kind of in my last book or whatever, but I've still given talks on this. Anyway, if we're asked to describe how much time has passed, we're not trained, or we haven't learned to describe things in terms of emotional change. It's just not something that, that's part of the public domain, partly because it's quite unstable, it's arguably subjective, although I should say it's subjective in a way that one would also argue it's real. It's subjective in the sense that it depends on, the, on there being an emotional subject, but that would be trivial for anybody who's in this situation because to even describe your sense of time requires a sensor, requires a, a, a sensor who can describe things. No, the the idea here is that it's not subjective or in the sense of it being illusory or unreal. It's just that it's inside you. You might say it's internal. But when we're asked to describe it, 
we've been equipped to describe it by things like clocks and clock time. And when we're asked to describe in terms of clock time, most of us have been trained up into identifying how to tell what time it is, which we are often, which we're frequently doing, whether we're any good at it or not, um, have, a, have a kind of a ready reckoner, a handy sense of how clock time lines up with our sense of time. But that ready reckoner, that kind of handy sense of, is profoundly error prone. And it's not about our experience at all. It's about our thinking, kind of a meta level, we're thinking about the relationship between our experience and clocks, which we're getting used to. It's association. So what I mean by that is like, do you know how long an hour, let me put it this way, do you know how long an hour feels? Now, if that, when I ask you to abstract away and answer that question in general, think about this. If I ask you how long an hour takes, you might say to me, 60 minutes. Or it takes however long the small hand on a clock takes to go around the face. If I ask you how long an hour takes, you might also answer, it takes an hour. That's what an hour is. An hour is whatever the period of time that takes an hour to occur. And these answers, you can tell, I hope, they're kind of weak. They're not particularly deep. And they're not particularly um, anything in terms of an answer. The last type of answer, where you say it just takes an hour, which you might feel like throwing up your hands and going, come on now, that's what I mean. That's basically treating an hour like a metric. That the thing you use to describe how long things take is clock time. So by definition, trivially, with no knowledge, no insight, no depth, when you're asked how long a particular period of clock time takes, the answer is always that particular period of clock time. Because that's how it works. If I ask you how long a year takes, you might answer however long it takes to go around the sun, which tells you something about what a year is. It's not necessarily clock time. But if I take, ask you how long an hour takes, your answer is going to be something like however long an hour is, by definition. Now, certain physicists listening to this might go, no, 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 no. We, we know the definition of a minute or a second is as follows to do the speed of light. But that's a new stand, change in the standard. And the second was there beforehand, and then gets slightly altered to match the speed of light because the speed of light is so constant. That's a different conversation, not interested in going there. It's on a level of nuance that no one else gives a crap about. Um, and also, it, it's also a tr it also comes out as being a trivial thing. But I'm only mentioning that because it can sometimes seem like the definition of an hour is dependent on something else. Some people talk about atomic clocks and so on. The thing is, in terms of our experience of the world, we don't have drawn any of that. We don't draw on light seconds. We don't draw on seconds, in fact, to judge how long an hour is. We don't draw on minutes, or we don't break it down in terms of 60 minutes. We don't draw on uh, a clock in our hand. When we're talking about experience time, and someone asks you, how much time has passed since this conversation began, or this podcast began, you're going to answer that, if, like an hour? You might even put a little question mark at the end. And you've got a sense that, yeah, it feels like an hour. It feels like an hour passed. But what, what are you using there? Do you think there's a clock built into you? Do you think that sometime when you were born as a small child, when you were a baby, as you're being baptized, if you're Catholic, or whatever ceremony is done to include your community, to, to include you in the community of the human race, somebody very carefully, without telling you, 
made a little incision at the back of your neck and inserted an absolutely teeny tiny Swiss level quartz watch that runs off the power of your brain and is perpetually there. And that's what you're using to judge it. And when it goes wrong, it's because a clock, a little Swiss watch, has diverged. Is that what you think is going on? Because it isn't, then why do you think when you're asked how long time has passed and you don't look at a watch, you just kind of reflect and answer, why do you think you're accessing an hour? You're able to look at an hour. Well, I'm going to suggest that one of the reasons why is because you actually believe that time, clock time is in the world. And that's a massive mistake because it's not. It's a convention. So finally, my point. The amount of time that passes when you sit in the cinema and you walk out and you feel like it was a lifetime or hours or days. The thing you use to measure how much time has passed, emotionally for that moment at least. It is correct insofar as the thing you're using to measure that period of time is what you use in your everyday sense of time which is this emotional beat, this change in associations with memory. That's my thesis. That your experience of time when watching the movie is as real as your experience of time outside of watching the movie insofar as you're, what you're using to measure time is the same. In a movie, your emotional change is much more rapid. You see someone being killed, you see someone falling in love. It all happens in the space of 10 minutes. The way the narrative, the, the expert way of the story is told does that work for you. But your emotional changes end up being the thing you use to judge how much time has passed. And you are correct, given that is the kind of times, the beats of time you want to use. Just as you'd be correct if your way of judging how much time has passed was a clock, and the clock had been changed, clock time had been changed in terms of metrics. Now, there can be more said there. That's the hypothesis, that's the proposal I'm making. But because we're in the habit of treating our sense of time as being tied to clock time, movie time radically departs from clock time, the same clock time. In an hour and a half, what typically feels like an hour and a half for a normal life is radically different to an hour and a half. Very little emotional change in most hour and a halves, hours and a halves. So, this is because we're in the habit of treating our experience as if it's another little clock. But that's a mistake, like I said. Um, I'm not really sure what to conclude about this. The basic thing I'm going to pl play around with next is just the idea that why is it that clock time and movie time why is it that your emotional time your actual lived experience of time and your experience of movie time actually line up it's partly not to do with the movie itself it's to do with the role the movie plays it is to do with the movie but it's to do with the role the movie plays in your own sense of time normally the thing is when you recall how long things are lasting how long things took emotionally. They can stretch over 10 years, 30 years. But the differences are, in a movie, are also the same emotional differences. 
And that's what makes it seem like 10 years past while you're watching the movie. And then as you come out of the movie afterwards, you realize nothing actually really happened. And once that sloughs off, it no longer is part of your sense of time because your emotional emotions change. The emotions on, refle on reflection of after you've seen a movie are very, very different. The emotions on reflection of having experienced similar events in real life, which is why real life is not a movie. But as a final point, possibly what our experience of watching films is more closely like is like dreaming. I think most people have had a dream where lying, asleep, waking up briefly from the dream just before you wake up and for a few moments afterwards, you feel like an enormous amount of time has passed in the dream when only a few hours have passed. And you wake up and you feel like days might have passed, months, weeks, and then after a while when you realize it's not the real world, you stop treating it like that. That's kind of interesting. Because I suppose one question is, why do you treat it as if that amount of time has not passed? Well, one reason is because the method by which you're using to evaluate how much time has passed in the dream, you, when you say how much time has really passed, you answer it in terms of clocks again. You say, well, it didn't pass, take weeks to pass. What happened to the events of that dream? Instead, it just took maybe a few seconds. Maybe a few minutes, I don't know. And that's the same with film. Like I said, film time is completely different to clock time. Well, I mean, it's not actually. Uh, and this is where things get quite complicated. And the, what makes them complicated is that we're using one metric to measure time in a film. And then the film manages to evoke that metric in us. And then the typical way the typical periods of clock time that the metric matches, we just simply do the same translation for film time. We're not wrong to measure the emotional period of time in a film. But the mistake we make is to assume that the emotional is persistent or consistent or always matches the same period of clock time. The same with dreams. Dreams also have emotional times by which we measure time. Again, there's no clock in a dream. And why that's important is because this explains why you get these seeming illusions of time. But they're not illusions of time because it's not like clock time is another dimension like depth of your sense of time. It's just another metric you use to evaluate the same set of events passing. It's less like a third dimension, a second dimension to time. The same way that our sense of depth is a third dimension to space. It's more like different means of measuring the distance between two things in space. But the methods you use um, are completely different uh, paths between those two points. And you might say, well, strictly speaking, this is the correct length. But with time, you don't have that kind of strict spatial distance, which is the correct distance, and everything else isn't like that. What you're just doing is measuring with different methods. And one of them is a clock, but it's not necessarily the most accurate one. Clocks have their own uses. They're powerful social instruments, much like mathematics, mathematical methods. 
but like powerful social instruments, they can constrain our thinking as much as liberate our thinking. What they do is they shape our thinking to suit certain tasks. And then if they're if they have legacy elements, if they have leftover elements that are not necessarily required, but are there because of their place in our society, we can end up in a situation where we, we feel something like clock time as similar to an object in the world. We bang up against it. It doesn't really suit us sometimes, but we find ourselves always still having to treat it seriously because it's part of our society. It's embedded. It's a legacy system. But like bad mathematics, it doesn't necessarily help us do what it's supposed to be helping us do. And then you can end up with things like conspiracy theories and stories about how the man is creating clocks to to um, force us into servitude or something like that. I'm sure some the men are going to do that, but they're more like opportunists rather than having some sort of Kabbalistic Illuminati level of power over clock time. My point about that is one could redesign clock time. In fact, try to do during the French Revolution. But one could try to redesign clock time to make it better, to make it more varied, more localizable like a language, to make it more functional properly for human beings and human society. We don't do that. Partly because there's this idea that it's a powerful coordinator between different aspects of society. It's precisely used to grab different stock markets to, to recognize that your boss is going to be online at your three o'clock in the day because they're in a different time zone. But it doesn't have to be that way. And it, And we could change it. But one thing that will definitely be very hard for us to recognize that we can change it is that we treat it like real time, which it's not. And I guess my thinking about film time and experience of time in relation to clock time here, and such thinking, is an attempt to sort of push back on that, to, to, uh, to really check ourselves against the presumption of a conventional tool that's embedded in our society as being the best tool. And if you want just a little bit of help to think about the possibility that this tool can exist without necessarily being good, recall what I said at the beginning about number systems and the Romans. The Roman number system cannot, absolutely cannot do, as far as, well as far as I know, cannot do proper calculus. It cannot do uh, powers, logarithms. It cannot do all the various mathematical things we do every single day when we do mathematics that's used in all of our genius of engineering and genius of mathematics and genius of science. It can't do any of them. It is almost in, it, it seems almost right that the most common place you find it is on tombstones. It's a dead system. But there was a period of time for hundreds of years where it did the practical work that was wanted, but it limited the ability for people to identify new systems and new methods. It's hard to imagine modern science, the Enlightenment, the way our the good sides of our modern society, if we all existed on the side a Roman numeral system. And similarly, it may be that the society we could actually radically become in a positive and useful manner 
which might help us do all kinds of things. I mean, even might help with, you know, I don't know how far it could extend. I haven't sat with it yet. And I certainly would need other more than my little mind to try and work it out. But what we could radically become as a society might be held back a little by our presumption of what's real, which is mere convention, like a clock. And uh, critically asking about what impact things like films or kind of immersive art experiences have on our sense of time and really taking them seriously and asking, are they real? Might be one way to push back on that. So anyway, thanks very much for listening to this extremely long podcast. I hope it was useful and interesting. It's badly recorded. It's um, got no music. Um, older episodes of this do have my attempt to play guitar occasionally. Probably not a great idea. So I decided not to do it anymore. And uh, if you wish to share thoughts, please do. I'm sure there's a means by, for doing it. Um, follow the podcast anyway. And, uh, and um, have a great insert your standard unit of useful time here. See you next. Insert your standard unit of useful time here.